This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Jeff Goldfarb, Asia Editor at Reuters Breaking Views. Billion Dollar Whale is a new page-turning, true-life thriller about a multi-billion dollar fraud that starts in Malaysia and sweeps across the Middle East, Wall Street, and Hollywood. Celebrities including Leonardo DiCaprio, Jamie Foxx, and supermodel Miranda Kerr all feature prominently in the story, as do longtime Goldman Sachs CEO Lloyd Blankfein and former Malaysian Prime Minister Najib Razak. But at the center of the scandal is a young, unknown financier named Joe Lowe. The book was co-written by two Wall Street Journal reporters. One of them, Tom Wright, joined me in our office in central Hong Kong to discuss how he chronicled this amazing story, one that continues to unfold. Here's our conversation. Tom, thanks very much uh, for joining us this morning. Great to be here. Um, I guess the best place to start is to try and get our hands around this story because it it, it obviously um, sprawls, you know, from Malaysia to the Middle East to, to, to all over the world. And so what do you tell people? Like, what's your sort of elevator pitch at, the, at this stage? You've obviously got it worked over now, but what's the what's the, the short, short synopsis? The elevator pitch is a 27-year-old Malaysian persuaded the prime minister of Malaysia to allow him to run a sovereign wealth fund. They took out about 4.5 billion, at least 4.5 billion, and they used it to uh, build a Hollywood empire and to sort of go crazy in casinos and nightclubs in, in America, get close to Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio, date Miranda Kerr, um, and then and then try and then the, the fraudster at the center of this, Joe Lowe, who's now on the run, then uh, tried to use the money to build a, a business portfolio to become a sort of bona fide billionaire. So in, a, in essence, and we get into this a little bit more later, but in essence, to he does that in a way to cover his tracks um, in hopes. Hundred percent, uh, yes. Yeah. He, he, it's almost as if if he can become a real billionaire with the stolen money, then then people will stop asking questions. So there's a lot of people that we know in this story, which which really um, you know obviously makes it more accessible than it might otherwise be. Uh, as you say, you got Leonardo DiCaprio, you have Jim, Jamie Fox, you have um, Lloyd Blankfein and Gary Cohn um, from Goldman Sachs. Who is Joe Lowe? <laughs> well, I mean, that was one of the things we really um, wrestled with in Billion Dollar Whale was trying to, to sort of get under his skin because obviously he didn't collaborate with the book. Um, much like my colleague John Caribou's book about uh, Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, who also, she also didn't collaborate. How do, you, how do you really get to know somebody? And if you asked people about Joe Lowe, um, they would almost unanimously say, well, he was a nice guy. But he seemed to have sort of very anodyne character. People wouldn't really have much to say about him beyond... You know, he gave me this or gave me that. He gave me a bottle of Cristal for free in a nightclub or, you know, the people, the, the other problem is the people who know him the best are still on the run with him at the moment. And so we didn't have access to them either. But um, slowly we were able to build up a picture of this guy who came from Penang, 
which is you know pretty much a backwater in Malaysia, um, from pretty wealthy family. His parents were millionaires. Um, went to Harrow in the UK boarding school, and then went on to Wharton, and didn't have any interest in learning really about the basics of finance from from Wharton. He was pretty smart, but he didn't study very hard. What he wanted to do was get to know all the world's richest people. He got to know the Sultan of Brunei's kids, Arab, very wealthy Arabs' children, and he parlayed that into access in the Middle East. And to cut a very long story short, he he basically got a very rich Arab uh, businessman to invest in Malaysia. And that bought him a lot of stock with Malaysia's then deputy prime minister, Najib Razak. And when Najib Razak became prime minister, uh, Jola was able to persuade Razak to let him, Najib Razak, to let him run a sovereign wealth fund from behind the scenes. And that's where the story gets really crazy. I mean, that's sort of what's extraordinary about it is that this guy actually has some amazing skills, right? I mean, for... As you say, well-educated, came with, but just sort of applied these charm and uh, other skills like in well, the in Well, when the, FBI, when the FBI started to sort of try to untangle the money laundering in, in this case, they were, they were basically the money laundering that Jolo uh, did was not very sophisticated. Um, he, he was not a – he didn't have a great attention to detail. And once people started to really look, they were able to untangle it. But I think where his great skill – his skill was uh, – one of the world's most you know perfect networkers he could he could go into a room figure out you know how someone could work for him and at the beginning he was really uh, you know a very typical broker which we see all the time in asia a broker between in a deal so he would he got he would get a fee for bringing this middle eastern money into malaysia initially in this in this project in southern malaysia a big property project in johor um but you know, when he was able to persuade the prime minister to allow him to run the sovereign wealth fund, he worked out what the prime minister wanted, which was political money. And so this sovereign wealth fund then went uh, to Goldman Sachs and uh, asked Goldman Sachs to raise money for it. And uh, Goldman Sachs raised $6.5 billion on the markets at a time when you know, interest rates were very low. There was great hunger for yield. And Jolo conspired to um, steal that money. Um, and that's, again, that was his genius. He he figured out who at Goldman um, needed him. He, and that- found, he found all the soft spots in the system, really, which is kind of amazing about that. I want to kind of just rewind because I, I, I want to get into all this stuff. But let's go back to, like, how does this story first land on your desk? It obviously doesn't land on your desk as a book. It lands on your desk as a news story. You're a journalist at The Wall Street Journal. You're here. You're So, so is it something you notice? Does somebody call you? It's just a headline that happens? What? How, how does it all start? Well, we were just talking about Goldman. And in 2013, Gary Cohen was meeting reporters in uh, – meeting a reporter from The Wall Street Journal in New York and sort of showing off about the amount of money that Goldman had made in Malaysia. And then in, then in their quarterly reports or their annual reports for that year, which was 2012, um, they, made, they made this huge amount of money on the fixed income side in you know, selling these bonds in Malaysia. And, and it didn't make a lot of sense to anyone. Um, a couple of colleagues of mine at the journal, and I wasn't on the story at the time, wrote this, this big piece about, uh, about Goldman's profits and sort of raising questions about why was it doing this business in Malaysia? Why was it charging so much? And why were they um, issuing these? Why was 1MDB issuing these bonds so close to a... Uh, an election that was coming up. So there was all this, there was concern that it was basically a political slush fund, that 1MDB was a political slush fund at the time. But then nothing, nobody really reported too much on it after that until early 2015 when a Malaysian newspaper called The Edge and a blog called The Sarawak Report were leaked um, a bunch of emails from a company called Petro Saudi. 
And PetroSaudi was one of the companies that Jolo had interacted with on the fraud, um, co-owned by a Saudi prince. Jolo would always choose um, co-conspirators who were very well connected so that he would try to get around compliance. And that's why PetroSaudi... So he would use them to say, like when, when people at least initially asked for some paperwork or something to be guaranteed or signed, he would say, well, it's a Saudi talk to prince. this guy. Yeah, KPMG, for example, were having trouble signing off on 1MDB's accounts. And they actually asked for, for something saying, you know, a Saudi prince is involved. It, it's actually extraordinary because if you're a politically exposed person, you should, people should be more skeptical, right? But in this case, yes, they were constantly pressuring people, saying, look, rich people, royal people, famous people are involved. Stop asking questions. Yeah, exactly. And anyway... Unluckily for Jolo, um, a, somebody called Xavier Justo, who worked for Petro Saudi and hadn't seen um, much of the money and was owed money by them, um, ended up leaving the company in possession of the email servers of that company, which, which showed a, a painted a picture of what had gone on on the, f- the first fraud. There are three frauds here, <laughs> one, in, one in 2009, one in 2012, and one in 2013. And this is before Goldman Sachs gets involved. And um, the Sarawak Report and The Edge um, did big stories on this in, in February of 2015. We subsequently got, got involved. We were, we were doing a big story on um, the use of 1MDB as a slush fund, very detailed story. And around that time, um, there were people in the Malaysian government who were trying to expose Najib Razak for, for receiving $681 million into his personal bank accounts. And uh, we got leaked the wire documents along with the Sarawak, Sarawak report. And that was, that was really sort of the beginning of our... So that's your first story? On uh, yeah, this, our, yeah, our second story second in that case. Story, but yeah. that was, you know, almost four years ago now. Right? Now, so at what point then... So you know you're onto something big. You've got a, a sovereign fund meant to be investing in who knows what, but is us- being used, you know, based on your reporting as a slush fund. You have this guy running around sort of running the thing in strange and mysterious ways. So you know you've got a good story. At what point does this then, do you and your colleague Bradley Hope, I guess, say, we have a book here. Like, where, where does that jump happen? Well, um, well, Bradley knew somebody from Hachette. So that was, that was one <laughs> that of the reasons. Pra- just a practical reason. a little reason. bit of Joe Lowe. Uh, <laughs> yes, yeah. there's, always, there's always networking. <laughs> but but um, I think it was... Um, Around the summer of 2016, when we had we had done this again, this sort of very big story on Jolo, that um, showed in intimate detail how he had been the puppet master of this, because we got hold of his uh, WhatsApp communications, uh, sorry, a BlackBerry message communications with all the other people that were involved in this. So you could really see him as the puppet master behind the scenes. Until that point, it, it was suspected, right? Um, even the 681 million into Najib's accounts, you know, Jolo's exact role in that wasn't clear until we got these. And, and then you could really see that what we needed to write was a biography of Jolo, who, you know, was probably going to go down as the sort of poster boy for fraud in the, in the 21st century. Because this isn't, you know, it's Michael Mulkin in the 80s, and then you've, or even Boevsky, and then you've got uh, Bernie Madoff, uh, you know, 15 years ago, or 10 years ago. Um, and now you've got Jolo. And we thought it would be a book because it isn't just a business story about, isn't just a biography of Jolo, it's a story about our age, which is um, an age in which it's extremely easy to raise billions of dollars at the drop of a hat, where compliance is negligible, where offshore centers play a huge role in shielding uh, the movement of cash around the world. And then also the, the evol- we started to realize what a big role Hollywood played in this story because Jolo had used the money 
to build a Hollywood empire, this company called Red Granite, um, that went on to make The Wolf of Wall Street um, in, an, in a pretty ironic twist. And um, there was a whole sort of sub-story here about what money can buy. If you have enough cash and enough, enough balls, you can, you can go and enter sort of any society. And that was another sort of interesting element to this we wanted to, we wanted to probe. I mean, it raises an interesting question there that you talk about how you sort of you, – you triangulated in a way to pin this thing really on Joe Lowe as sort of the, the mastermind of it. To what extent does – are the accomplices, the big accomplices, I'm talking about sort of Najib Razak and, you know, Goldman Sachs to a certain degree. How much do they know about this? Like, because you do put this a lot, you sort of say like, well, Joe Lowe kind of orchestrated this whole thing. But do these other people in the periphery, do they know, does Leonardo DiCaprio know anything? Does Goldman Sachs know anything? Does the Malaysian government, what, how much do they know and how much are they a part of this? Well, Najib Razak 100% knew what was going on um, in that he knew that Jolo was providing political funding for, for himself. He was providing uh, a mansion in Belgravia for his stepson and for him to use in London, um, that he was providing a $27 million jewel for his wife. Um, so there are were, there were all there are varying degrees of complicity here. Najib Brazak gave political cover to Jolo for this to happen. There's no way that he didn't know. He may not have known that Jolo took $4.5 billion or more out of the fund, but he is 100% complicit in my view. Um, Goldman, I mean, Goldman says it could not have known what would happen with the money that it helped raise. And I think that is, you know, if you're talking about Lloyd Blankfein, the former CEO and current chairman, I think that's true. Um, But obviously, two weeks ago, there were the the unsealing of the indictments of Tim Leisner, who was the Goldman partner who became very close to Jolo. Tim Leisner has pleaded guilty uh, to uh, money laundering and to bribery and to breaking anti-bribery laws. I mean, the indictment says that he took uh, $200 million into his personal accounts uh, from 1MDB and helped to, to funnel that around to pay bribes and use some of it himself. Um, Lloyd Blankfein has said uh, that recently that this is a rogue employee. But in terms of uh, complicity, what, what the Department of Justice investigators are looking at is... Um, how much did Goldman's red flag? Uh, how much did Goldman's compliance break down? Did they miss red flags? And was there was there sort of a willful ignorance at the bank? Because if you look at the indictment, it talked the compliance and legal functions at Goldman consistently were asking Leisner, who's pleaded guilty, whether Jolo was involved. Goldman's private bank had turned Jolo down for an account over concerns about the source of his wealth, and it's almost laughable in the indictment how many times uh, legal at Goldman asked Leisner whether he's involved. Um, and then more recently, uh, it turned out that Andrea Vella, who, who was the, until a few weeks ago, was the co-head of investment banking at Goldman here in, in Hong Kong, um, uh, according to the indictment, he also knew about Jolo's role and helped to hide it from compliance. He's not been charged with anything, um, unlike Leisner, but he's, a, he's named as a co-conspirator. So we still don't know exactly how far it went in Goldman in terms of knowledge of this. Um, and that's, that's going to come out in the weeks ahead. So, I mean, within that, again, within that framework, it's interesting about this book. It's populated by, obviously, a lot of people doing a lot of bad things. So maybe there's a lot of bad people in this story. There are some innocent bystanders, maybe greedy um, people, hangers-on, happy to get a bottle of Cristal from this strange guy who's trying to buy their influence. <laughs> well, I should just break in here to, to answer that la- your last question about yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. So did he know? I, I mean, there's no sign that Leonardo DiCaprio is sort of criminally complicit in any of this. <laughs> Leonardo, Le- so Jolo um, turns up in Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio's life in, at, in 2009 at a time when DiCaprio is extremely powerful, um, you know, uh, 
probably the most powerful actor in Hollywood. But he wants to make The Wolf of Wall Street, which he, he's bought the rights from Jordan Belfort, the real Wolf of Wall Street, the right. Long Island uh, stock... Uh, stock uh, uh, fraudster. Stock right. fraudster, yeah. <laughs> um, and Warner Brothers were going to make the film, but they pulled the plug because they were concerned that it wouldn't uh, reach a general audience because it was going to be R-rated, quite racy film. Um, and Jolo turns up into his life with, with the offer of $400 million in film financing, just telling, telling DiCaprio, who has his own production company, and Martin Scorsese, look, I'll, I'll bankroll your next four films at $100 million a go. And that, and that, that for um, somebody like DiCaprio or Scorsese, untethered them from the, the studio system, right. which, which can be... So, again, Jolo figured out what he... And he gave DiCaprio Picasso paintings and... He, he, he paid I mean, for him to go He's all over the, the story. I mean, yeah. he shows up at parties on boats and he shows up like, I mean, he's just everywhere. When him. Jolo first uh, takes the money, he, he pays for, you know, over 20 Playboy Playmates to hang out in a, in a Vegas hotel suite with, with basically only Leonardo DiCaprio and a couple of other people and they play Baccarat and, and DiCaprio goes to Vegas with them on these gambling trips and, and you know, the charitable way of looking at that is that, that DiCaprio is a character actor, so he was getting ready to play Jordan Belfort in The Wolf of Wall Street, <laughs> which filmed in 2012. And all very of this charitable is going of you. But I, yeah, so, I mean, I guess the so again, there, there's a lot of bad people. There's maybe some innocent, greedy bystanders. Who are the good guys in this story? Well, there are very few heroes in this story. I mean, the good the good the good guys are there's this uh, woman called uh, Claire Rucastle Brown who runs the Sarawak Report. Uh, which I just mentioned got the emails. There's uh, Hoke Tat, who's the publisher of The Edge, a Malaysian newspaper, who also gets the, the, the emails. And these, these two uh, people broke the initial story. Um, K-Tat, uh, so what, when they broke the story, and then after we came in on the story, Najib Razak in Malaysia starts to crack down. Um, he fires his attorney general. He gets rid of uh, cabinet members. Um, uh, he, and then he arrests um, Hoke Tat, the publisher of The Edge, who, who's taken into jail overnight, and he suspends the license of the newspaper. So for sure, um, you know, the, the, the press here uh, plays a role. We also, we also get involved. Um, and then there's uh, the, the, the former chairman of the board of 1MDB, when it was first set up, um, uh, resigns very early on because he doesn't really understand what's going on here. So there are, you know, here and there, there are people. But in general, in the finance world, uh, there's very, very few heroes. There are um, a couple of people you point to in Goldman, who you alluded to one, who, who do speak up and say, uh, well, one who turns them down for an account, but there's another who, so, uh, someone in Asia who says, this doesn't smell right to me. There's you know. a president of the Asia business back then, a guy called David Ryan, who said, um, first of all, why, are we, why is this fund willing to pay so much money to Goldman? Goldman made $600 million in profits, selling $6 billion in bonds, 10%. There's a fee that is unheard of. Unheard of. Normally, you'd make a million dollars. I mean, this is just a play. It was actually, I mean, it, it, was, it was portrayed as being some kind of strange derivative, but really it was just a plain vanilla bond that Goldman bought onto its, uh, Goldman bought all of it. So it did take a capital risk. But why 1MDB needed to do that is totally unclear. It was a sovereign fund. It could have gotten, you know, sovereign uh, rate. It could have paid a lot less for this, it, it, not 10%. Um, and David Ryan, the president of the Asia business, said, look, we shouldn't be charging this much, trying to lower the fees. He was overruled by a bunch of people, including Gary Cohen, the then president of, of Goldman, who went on to become Trump's economic advisor, who was a massive um, backer of this business. And I think, you know, the context that we paint in the book is this is after the financial crisis. Markets are extremely uh, weak in 2012 when this is happening in the U.S. Um, and there's a lot of pressure on the Asia business to, to find more sources of money, more sources of profit. Um, 
And that's the context in which this is all happening. And so David Ryan was, was um, you know, he was sort of not listened to, and he ended up leaving the bank. What, um, how much danger did you feel like you were in? I mean, where, tell us a little bit about where you had to travel for this story. And as, you know, obviously you're dealing with exceptionally power, powerful people through this story. And um, given what we've seen happen to the press more recently, maybe, maybe not quite as much as was happening back then, but certainly more recently, you know, did, tell us about how you were feeling like doing this. Report. Well, um, I did, when I was reporting on trying to find out more about Jolo's background, I went up to Penang where he's from. And I left my business card around in a bunch of places. And that then gave that business card and my cell phone number then funneled into the prime minister's office somehow from one of those people, which gave them the ability to track my phone. Um, I then flew to Kuala Lumpur. And this this is all in the book. And um, Bradley, uh, Bradley Hope, the co-author of the book, was called up by a source of ours and said, look, they know that Tom Wright's in the Shangri-La in Kuala Lumpur and he really should get out of the out of the country because he's going to be arrested. So there was stuff like that. However, I mean, I think that the danger here is really much more for people, Malaysians, who were there at the time when Najib was cracking down. I mentioned about um, uh, Hoke Tat going to jail overnight. There was also a murder that we still, until today, we don't know whether it was related, but it could have been that a public prosecutor who signed, uh, who was involved in drafting uh, an arrest warrant of Najib before Najib cracked down, there were these moves to arrest him by certain people in the Malaysian um, Attorney General's office, he was found dead, um, and his body was, was, was encased in concrete in an oil drum. And that he's now, there's a trial going on in that murder for another, uh, for another reason unrelated to 1MDB, but there are many people who think that that could be related to the whole thing. And were you or your editors ever inclined to pull back or, like, try and do something differently? Or, I mean, well, I left, the, it, I left the country right, over land course, to Singapore, yeah. and then we, I, I did not travel back to, okay, so you know. to Malaysia until okay. the elections, um, the change of government. A little bit of process questions. Sort of like, how did you? In, I mean, co-authoring a book is um, different than co-authoring a news article. How did you? How did the two of you work together on sort of producing this book? Yeah, it was. You know, I was warned at the beginning of the process by a, a colleague who had written a book, co-authored a book, that this is like we're going to end up hating each other, and uh, you know, this is difficult. But Bradley and I worked fantastically well together, and and um, we, you know, we had. A, there's been a great push and pull between us about. Um, you know, how much money trail should you have? How much partying should you have? And we were able to sort of bounce stuff off each other. He lived in New York at the beginning and then he moved to London. So we also had a sort of different time zones, which was good in terms of getting in touch with people and focusing on different different parts of it. Um, you know, we decided that we wanted to do a book that, re- that, you know, was more than just about Jolo. As I said earlier, it was about, you know, what what's going on in global finance in the 21st century, this, this moment. But we didn't want it to be like... A, a paradise papers kind of thing we wanted it because money trail is very hard to read about you get quite bogged down in corruption like wire transfers and wire transfers <laughs> use of we needed it that to be in it because we needed someone to sure. read this and say look this is the book about one of the biggest financial scandals ever carried out but we also wanted them to read about you know the characters involved the the, the leonardo dicaprio's america because all of those and and the the sort of way in which jolo was able to do this um and in terms of the reporting, we went a long way beyond uh, what we'd done at the Wall Street Journal. Um, we had a big problem at the beginning showing how did Jolo go from Wharton to running a sovereign wealth fund. That didn't, there was a weird lack of trajectory in the narrative there. And at that point, we got hold of um, the emails of this gentleman called Yusuf Alotaiba, who is the UAE's ambassador to Washington. Even today, he's still in that position. And he had been basically Jolo's major enabler at that point. Um, because Jolo had met him in Abu Dhabi and, and Al-Tibur had helped to sort of connect him around the Arab world and 
That's how Jolo brought the money into Malaysia. And so we also, from those emails, learned how Taiba had uh, received money from from Jolo and him, Taiba and his partner, talking about buying Ferraris after doing a deal with Jolo. So it was that kind of... Uh, and we got, we got the emails of Red Granite, the film company, right. which again helped us to learn about Playboy Playmates and all this kind of thing. So it was really... Um, that was the tough work. Yeah, that was a tough work. <laughs> well, it is quite tough cold calling like... <laughs> 50 Playboy Playmates, none of whom want to talk to you. But um, You and many other men. We, found, we, we, found, we, did find, we did find we did find one who wanted to tell us about it, and so that's how we did that. But yeah, it was, uh, it was painstaking, as you mentioned, only triangulation. I mean, one thing I think we need to do, which we, we haven't done, is this timestamp this, cause, because the story is still unfolding. So here we are, you and I are talking on uh, November 15th. Just this week, um, there has been um, claims out of Malaysia by the new administration, the old new administration, um, that uh, accusing Goldman Sachs of being cheats, they want their money back. Um, they're, they're a constant develop. You know, we've just had charges filed. Um, you've had the, the guilty plea from the Goldman Sachs, uh, Tim Leisner. Sort of wh- where is this going? Like, what, I mean, you obviously are still on this story. The book's published, but you're not done. Yeah, it's a good place to be in with a nonfiction uh, book because, you know, that people, people want to read it to find out what's, when, Goldman Sachs, when the Goldman Sachs indictments happened two weeks ago, we had a, a spike in book sales because people want to find out what's going on here. Um, so the big question mark on the Goldman Sachs uh, case is whether the bank will be criminally indicted uh, by the Department of Justice or not. Obviously, uh, Tim Leisner has pleaded guilty. There's another banker called Roger Ung who has been charged and, and is uh, been arrested in Malaysia. Uh, he hasn't pleaded yet. Um, uh, will will the bank be will will the bank as a bank be found criminally liable, or will it reach some kind of deferred prosecution agreement in which it will just pay a sort of hefty civil penalty. And th- those are the kind of things we're going to find out as the, as, the, as the case in America progresses. And then the other huge uh, unknown here is about Jolo, who's obviously at the center of this and the, the sort of mastermind of the whole thing. Um, the Malaysian government uh, believes he is living in China with some, some element of state protection. Um, he has been, Jolo has been charged in absentia in Malaysia. He's been indicted uh, alongside those Goldman indictments, Jola was also indicted in America. Singapore has a Interpol red notice out for him, so he's wanted. Um, but he appears to he appears to sort of have some ability to stay in China. Uh, who knows what's going to happen? I guess one of the bits, sort of as we start to wrap this up, is how unique is this set of? I mean, it's clearly a fantastical tale, right? It's somebody who has exploited every nook and cranny of the system to to abscond with billions of dollars. You know, are is that system still in play? In other words, could this happen again? Um, I think so, yes. I mean, you know, America has this Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, um, which is supposed to mean if you're an American bank or company, you're not allowed to go overseas and be corrupt or interact on the level of the, of the sort of corruption that's going on in the place where you're doing business. But I think that is um, one of the problems with the system is if you, if you go into a place where there's lack of rule of law, it's very hard for America to police that, right? I mean, you could you could argue, well, this one this this story came out because somebody at Petro Saudi, one of the co-conspirators, decided to leak these emails. Um, if that hadn't happened, you know, who knows where we'd be? Um, and one thing that's astounded me is how long it takes. You know, I've been working on this for four years, so it's no surprise to me that what's happening. But a lot of people today are saying, "Wow, this story is incredible. I've never heard about it." And I think I think even now uh, it's not that well known a story in the U.S. and certainly not in Europe and the U.K. Um, where, by the way, our book's not even available in the U.K. because because of the defamation laws there. Uh-huh. Um, 
And so, yeah, I think I think it's going to take a while to play out. And what about Malaysia's pursuit here, not just of Joe Lowe, but of the money? Do you, do you think they, do they deserve their money back? Well, there's, a, there's one other thing going on in America, which is uh, called the Kleptocracy Initiative. The Department of Justice has seized, has moved to seize all the assets that were bought with the stolen some money. Of the paintings. And the paintings, the mansions on the, the Time Warner. There's a mansion in the Time Warner Center that Beyonce and Jay-Z used to live in that Joe Lowe then lived in. There's mansions on the West Coast. Uh, Jola was building a mansion with a go-kart truck underground. Um, so they've moved to seize all this stuff. And that money should go back to Malaysia. That's how that works. It's a, it, that, that initiative is, an, is a signal to foreign kleptocrats not to use America as a place to buy assets. And Malaysia should get some of that money too. Okay. Um, I guess the one lasting thing I sort of want to know about is, is, um, is there some piece of this puzzle that nags you at night that you don't have? Is there some piece of it that you, you're still like – chasing that, that you i mean obviously you want to see how this plays out you want joe Lowe to probably be brought to justice um but is there is there some part of the story that you're like i ah, still still jones and to find it or get it well you know we when we when we published this we were we did say look is there something do, is there something that's going to come out from total left field that a character isn't in our cast of characters or and that has that hasn't happened so the goldman indictment to be honest, was shocking in the amount of money that Tim Leisner um, pleaded guilty to receiving into his accounts. I mean, that, that was $200 million, right? So that's, that's, uh, that was shocking to me. Um, but it was in line with um, how we sort of ended the book because, because Tim Leisner had helped Jolo to, to try to buy a bank in Mauritius after, he, after Leisner had left Goldman. So we, we, had, we had sort of this, co- this chapter called White Collar Crime where we outlined that. Um, but I think I do think the, the the trial involving Goldman is going to be where we're going to see the most interesting new facts uh, going forward, and then um, presuming there's not a settlement, but presuming there's not a, yeah, presuming there's not a settlement, but but um, also yes, just uh, you know, getting Jolo hearing Jolo on the stand would also be fascinating because you know you 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 get a lot more of the secrets about what went on i think this is probably just a first draft of history right and speaking of that what would be what for you would be the lasting impact of this story that you've chronicled well i hope but i'm not i'm not that confident that it would lead um to uh compliance in in banks in in legal firms and elsewhere being more serious um not just being by the letter of the law but being sort of like people taking a more moralistic view in the way that they approach clients to ensure that um, you know the global financial system is not taken over by the 0.01% and, the, and, and, and criminals, basically. Tom Wright, thank you very much for coming by. I could talk about this book for ages, but I will let you go do some more digging. The book is Billion Dollar Whale. It's a real page turner. I highly recommend it. And uh, thanks again to you, Tom. Thank you. Obviously, there will be more chapters to write in this exciting story, and it's ready-made for a movie, too. In the meantime, keep an eye out for more headlines on Malaysia, Goldman Sachs, and Joe Lowe. My thanks to Tom Wright for swinging by. I'm Jeff Goldfarb in Hong Kong. The Exchange is produced by Sharon Lamb. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our show on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you access your podcasts. And check us out every day on BreakingViews.com. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com slash symbols.
Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.